Reality, what we call reality, is like an iceberg. The unseen spiritual world is far more consequential than the visible physical world. So never draw conclusions based on what you see. You draw conclusions based on what God says. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. to be in Daniel, so open your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 10, Jan Daniel chapter 10. As you know, we've been studying the prophet Daniel for a number of months now. Today, we're going to look at the fourth and final revelation in the book of Daniel. He'd already received three major prophetic revelations. They're recorded in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Daniel 9, and this is the last one that covers three chapters. This prophecy is so incredibly detailed and accurate that many have charged that the book of Daniel was written after the fact. The next two or three weeks, we're going to be looking at chapter 11 and 12 specifically, and there's over 135 prophetic references in there, most of which have already taken place at this point in time. The New Testament, the Old Testament, was translated from the Hebrew into the Greek in a Septuagint translation. Septuagint means 70. There were 70 scholars tasked by Ptolemy Philadelphus in 270 AD, 285 to 270, took him 15 years to translate the entire Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. Greek was the common language that was spoken in Israel during that period of time, and so they wanted the New Testament, the Old Testament rather, in Greek from Hebrew. So we have that work product in 285 to 270 BC that documents and translates Daniel. So we have this Daniel translation 300 years before many of the events that took place. We have documentation that, in fact, this is a prophetic revelation, not written after the fact, documenting the supernatural origin of this prophecy. So these three chapters, today we're going to look at chapter 10, which is really the introduction to the prophecy. Next week, Lord willing, chapter 11 is the body of the prophecy, and chapter 12 is the epilogue. So let's pick up the narrative in Daniel 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was one was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. Here's our first principle. Effective prayer requires focused attention and vigilance. Effective prayer requires focused attention and vigilance. So this chapter takes place in the third year of Cyrus. That's 536 B.C. Cyrus conquered Babylon October 12th of 539. This is the third year of King Cyrus. In 538, two years before this, Cyrus had issued the decree that the Jews would be free to go back and return to their homeland. Now, unfortunately, about 42,000, 43,000 Jews actually returned that first uh, exile return with Zerubbabel. Many Jews, can you imagine, if you have a 70-year captivity, most of the Jews that were alive in Babylon had been born in Babylon. They'd been there for 70 years, for goodness sake. So there's very, very few that actually were actually born in Israel, had come over, and were still there. So many Jews decided to stay in Babylon rather than face the hardships of rebuilding the nation. They were settlers. They weren't pioneers. Now, Daniel is not returning to Israel. Number one, he's over 80 probably close to 83, 84, and he might have had some government responsibilities. We think he probably retired from the post of prime minister uh, in the first year, about three years ago. So we retired about 80 years old. For those of you that are thinking you're too old to keep working, get over it. Keep working, right? (laughs) However, 
Daniel's primary reason for staying is his passion was to motivate more Jews to return to the land. I mean, out of a couple million Jews, he had 43,000 that had returned, and he wanted them to go back to the land to establish their identity and fulfill God's plan for the nation. So Daniel, of course, when he has a need, he always does what he always does. He prays. And it's clear from the vision in chapter 9 that we went through a couple of weeks ago that Israel's future is going to be filled with conflict and persecution, and this is why Daniel was mourning. It's a word for sorrowing. And he was also mourning over the fact that the Jews in Israel, the 43,000 that had gone back to rebuild, they were facing an enormous amount of opposition. Nehemiah records that. I mean, there was a tremendous amount of opposition to them rebuilding the temple. So Daniel is fasting and praying now for three weeks, 21 days. And he, re, he didn't not eat anything. It says he abstained from choice foods. So what that would mean, any of your favorite foods, forget about it for three weeks, right? No chocolate for three weeks or whatever it is you like. And no creature comforts. He didn't use any ointment. I don't know whether he didn't bathe for three weeks, but he focused his attention on prayer. It seems as though effective prayer requires intense effort. I don't know about you guys, but prayer for me is really hard work. If you take God seriously, it's a lot of work. James 5.16 says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and, underline this, he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain for three years and six months. Have any of you been praying that it would not rain in California lately? Maybe that's why we don't have rain, right? And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So Daniel's praying, and he's not getting any answers. Remember in Daniel 9, he's praying, and the angel Gabriel interrupts his prayer. Before he's finished praying, he has an answer. Now, that's my idea of prayer. You know, before you finish praying, God gives you an answer. I love that stuff. Here he's praying intensely for three weeks before he gets a response. Verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of the pure gold from Euphaz. His body was also like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like a gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Verse 7, Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away and hid themselves. So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the voice of his words, and as soon as I heard the voice of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Here's the principle. Jesus is the focus of prophecy and the goal of history. Jesus is the focus of prophecy and the goal of history. I find it fascinating that every word, pronunciation, space, name, place in Scripture has purpose. And it says when Daniel was praying, the 24th day of the first month. And you say, why would the Holy Spirit put in something that seemingly is so obscure to tell us to know when he started praying? Why is that important? Well, he started his fast on Nisan 3, the third of Nisan, and continued for three weeks, which ended on Nisan 24. Nissan was the first month of their calendar. It's not a car, you know, a Nissan. It's, it's actually their January. It's the first day of their calendar, uh, first month of their calendar year. What is important is Passover took place on the 14th day of the first month, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread took place seven days later. Daniel didn't observe any of those celebrations, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because he was praying. Now, that's focused prayer. I mean, that's praying through the 4th of July. That's praying through Memorial Day. That's praying through your birthday. He's focused on praying. So these little details have purpose in the mind of the Holy Spirit. Now, he's located on the Tigris River. The Tigris River, remember, there's two major rivers that flow north to south 
through this region. We're talking modern-day Iraq and Iran. And the rivers of the Mesopotam through Mesopotamia are the Tigris to the east, Euphrates to the west. These are two rivers that flow north to south. And Mesopotamia means between the rivers. So this whole fertile crescent, this area where civilization began, occurred between both of these rivers. He's on the Tigris River, which is 80 miles east of Babylon. He had to walk to get there, of course. And he's there, apparently, along with several others, and it sounds like they went there to pray. And while there, he received a vision of this supernatural per person, and he describes him in these terms. He says he's wearing linen. Well, linen is the garments of priests, and linen in Scripture always represents purity and holiness. This individual has gold. Obviously, speaking of God's sovereignty, gold is the king of metals. God is the king of glory. He's wearing beryl. That's a transparent jewel. We also know it as crystallite or topaz, massive light reflector reflecting God's glory. It says his face was like lightning, like the brilliant sun at high noon. His eyes were like flaming torches. Anytime you see the words eyes in Scripture, it usually refers to searching, seeking, intelligence. It's talking about God's omnipotence, our, our omnipresence, our omniscience, all-knowing. And it says he had feet like polished bronze to execute the wrath of God by stamping out sin. His voice was like the roar of many waters or a multitude of many peoples. So the question is, who's Daniel seeing? We know this is a supernatural personage, but is it an angel? Or is it, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ? We believe clearly that he's seeing the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, the glory of God, the power of God, the omniscience of God, and the judgment of God. Clearly, at this point in time, it's interesting to compare this with John's description of the resurrected Christ in Revelation 1, 13-16, which we'll put on screen. John describes the resurrected Christ in using these terms. Extraordinarily tight parallels. And in the middle of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, girded across his breast with a golden girdle. That's like a sash, a golden sash. Verse 14, And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been caused to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters, his right hand he held seven swords, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand on me and saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now, when you compare these two descriptions, Daniel's description of the pre-incarnate Christ and John's description of the resurrected Christ, the parallels are simply staggering. They're both describing the same person, and they both react the same way. They fall down without strength to stand. Probably lost consciousness. Pretty common occurrence in Scripture. Job saw the Lord. He repented the dust and ashes. Isaiah saw the Lord in Isaiah 6, and he had no strength. Habakkuk, which you just heard this morning, saw the Lord uh, and uh, had a obviously a conversation with the Lord, and he, uh, it was unnerving to him. And Peter said, God, Jesus, depart from me. I'm a sinful man when he discovered who he was in the boat with. And they all reacted with an extreme awareness of their sinfulness in light of God's divine holiness. Now, in the Old Testament, actually throughout Scripture, an appearance of the second member of the Trinity is called a theophany or a Christophany. Theos means God. A friend of mine named his grandson, well, the parents named the son Theo. Theo means God, and Phanos means appearance. So theophany is an appearance of God. A Christophany is appearance of Christ. So the whole point of this appearance of Christ is that throughout history, God's purpose is to have a relationship with people. From beginning to end, God wants a relationship with people. Now, in the Old Testament, we see him occasionally come face-to-face -face with people. When Jesus returns to planet Earth, we will not see him occasionally. 
we will see him 24-7 because he is going to live with us. That was the whole point. Remember in Genesis when God created the heavens and the earth before sin came? It says God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve like friends. I mean, they would just walk and talk before sin. The first theophany is in Genesis chapter 3 when God was walking in the garden with them, right? Well, Revelation, we're going to have that same thing again. God and man will dwell together and we will have this intimate, loving relationship and he will be our God and we will be his people. That's the whole point. That's why Christ came to reconcile sinful man and holy God so we can have that loving kind of relationship. Now, the Old Testament refers to this appearance, this Christophany, if you will, many times by calling this person the angel of the Lord. And that term is used about 50 times in the Old Testament. Sometimes the angel of the Lord refers to angels, but many times it's clearly referring to deity. And Joshua, of course, had this experience. He's getting ready to invade Canaan, cross the Jordan River, and take Jericho, and he has an interaction with someone who's clearly more than an angel, Joshua 5.13. Now, it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua went up to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You know, we could do a whole sermon on this. This this passage right here is just incredible at this point in time. Joshua, of course, is the leader of Israel. He's been tasked with taking the land, and he sees this personage with a sword, and Joshua doesn't run away. He goes right up to him, and he says, Are you for us or are you against us? And there's a little principle here. Whenever God enters the situation, he does not take sides. He takes over. Whenever God enters a situation in your life, he is not taking sides. He's taking over. God is not Democrat. He's not Republican. He's not independent. He's God, which means he takes over wherever he is, which is everywhere at this point in time. Clearly, this personage tells Joshua, the ground you're standing on is holy, and and he accepts, God's, he accepts Joshua's worship. This is clearly more than an angel. So it seems very interesting to me that the commander-in-chief of Israel would appear now to Daniel, just after Daniel has received a revelation in chapter 9 saying, your people are going to go to war, and they're going to be in great conflict and great persecution, and you're going to need to know that the commander-in-chief is on the job in your conflict. Verse 10, then, behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And this person, he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he spoke this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, from the first day you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, Your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. Here's the principle. Reality is like an iceberg. The unseen spiritual world is far more consequential than the visible physical world. Reality, what we call reality, is like an iceberg. The unseen spiritual world is far more consequential than the visible physical world. Understand that there's a lot of confusion here. The first person Daniel saw was the pre-incarnate Christ. He is now not talking to the pre-incarnate Christ. He's now talking to an angel because the angel says, I have been sent to you. Well, God does the sending of angels, right? So clearly, he's needing some divine help to get in his hands and knees. And the, the person that touches Daniel here is not Christ. 
because this angel says, I've been sent to you. Probably Gabriel. We know that Daniel's had contact with Gabriel before. Gabriel is one of God's preeminent messengers. He used on more than one occasion to deliver messages to humans. And he said, Daniel, by the way, just so you know, from the very first day you started to pray, your words were heard. From the very first day. I know it's been three weeks, but your words were heard in heaven from the day you opened your mouth. It's really important that we understand this because there are times when we pray and it seems like nobody's listening and nothing happens. It's extremely important you understand that God hears prayers instantly, but his answers are not always instant. Amen? Some of you have been praying for years and you're saying, is anybody up there? Change the battery in your hearing aid or whatever you talk to God about, right? See, God only knows what is best. He knows when is best. We judge things, including God's answers to our prayers, according to our limited perception. And when God doesn't respond quickly, preferably instantly, we say, are you listening? He always listens. But he knows when we need to hear what he needs to hear. We fail to see the invisible realm, the spiritual realm, and as such, like an iceberg, we miss most of reality. The natural material world, the space-time universe you see, the Milky Way and all the billions of galaxies in it, reside inside a spiritual realm that is much, much, much larger than the physical realm. I know that's hard to comprehend. The spiritual realm cannot be perceived by our five senses. We perceive the spiritual realm by faith. The five senses are good to perceive the material realm. The spiritual realm is perceived by faith. And the only way we know about the spiritual realm is because it's been revealed to us in Scripture. Right? Sometimes the Word of God pulls back the curtain of the physical world and we get to see a glimpse of the spiritual world that underlies all that. And that's what Daniel gets to see here now. And the Gabriel, the angel, explains to Daniel, it's been a three-week delay from the time you started praying until I showed up because there's been opposition or warfare in the heavenly places with somebody called the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, a little quick background. The Bible clearly teaches that God and Satan have angelic forces that follow them, angels that carry out their bidding. Scripture clearly teaches that there is ongoing heavenly warfare between the holy angels that follow God and the demonic angels that follow Satan. Verse 1 of this chapter, Daniel says, this vision is one of great conflict. Well, I would argue that angelic warfare certainly qualifies as great conflict, right? Furthermore, according to this passage and others, it seems as though God and Satan both have assigned angelic beings to influence human affairs in various locations. Satan apparently has assigned demons to specific region and human kingdoms in order to oppose God, God's plan, and God's people. The prince of the kingdom of Persia seems to be a fallen angel, a demon, assigned by Satan to the physical kingdom of Persia. God assigns angels to influence human kings to carry out God's plan. Satan assigns demons to influence human kings to oppose God's plan. This happened to be located around the king of Persia. This demon had been opposing Gabriel for three weeks from the time God sent Gabriel until Gabriel shows up. It almost appears as if battles on earth are first fought and won by angelic forces in heaven and then carried out on earth by human beings. So when we see earthly warfare, as we are now seeing, we probably should suspect prior heavenly warfare over that specific target that occurred prior to earthly warfare. Apparently, events on earth do not always originate on earth. See, we're very, very sensory beings. We think that everything on earth stays on earth, like Vegas. We think that everything on earth begins on earth because we think we're so large and in charge. We are being influenced every day by forces in the spiritual realm, 
not to think so is incredibly self-centered, right? I make my own decisions. Who's got you influenced? If you say nobody's got me influenced, that's a sign of delusion, right? We all are influenced. Empires, nations rise and fall according to God's sovereign purposes, and that involves both human and angelic participants. Revelation 16, 13 gives us an illustration of how that will occur during the tribulation. John writes, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, Antichrist, out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's the unholy trinity, three unclean spirits like frogs. These are demons. For they are spirits of demons performing signs, underline this, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Now, lest you start blaming everything on demons, you have enough sin nature in your own life, and I have enough sin nature in my own life, we would sin without demonic help. But we do not know the extent of demonic influence today. We do know that those who possess the Holy Spirit obviously cannot be possessed by Satan. It doesn't mean you can't be attacked. It just means you can't be possessed. We also know that Satan is the liar, and Satan is the tempter, and he will always tempt us with what? Lust of the flesh, lust of pride, or lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. He always does that. They worked really well with Eve in the garden, by the way, and they failed spectacularly with Jesus in the wilderness. But Satan's going to continue to use those temptations. What this Revelation passage demonstrates is that Satan will continually assign demons to influence people to disobey God. You will always have Satan's help to rebel against God. You will always have his influence to rebel against God. That's what he does. And you will always have God and his forces, the Holy Spirit, encouraging you to obey God. It depends on who you're going to listen to. Who's got you influenced? So the reality is, is that spiritual warfare is not confined to heaven between angels. It takes place here on earth. God's people are engaged in a spiritual war with an invisible enemy that does not possess a physical body. We are at war, but our warfare is spiritual, not physical. We know that. Ephesians 6.12 says, Paul is writing, For our, you and I, Christians, our struggle, we're in a struggle, we're in a battle, is not against what? Flesh and blood. But against what? Four classes of demonic forces. Rulers, powers, world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness, where are they located? In the heavenly places, but they love to do business here on earth because Satan is always trying to organize rebellion against God. Now, we know that God's angelic host of angels is extremely well organized. There are angels, seraphim, cherubim, and so forth. Satan also has an organizational structure. These terms, rulers, powers, world forces, spiritual forces of wickedness, seem to indicate ranks of demons and they have various levels of responsibility and authority, we get fooled many times into thinking that people that oppose God and God's people are the enemy. Human beings are never the enemy. Human beings are deceived by the enemy. So when you have people that oppose you because you belong to God, those people are deceived by the enemy. They need a savior who opens their eyes to the reality of what's going on. Satan is the master liar. Do you understand? I know you do. Before you came to Christ, what was your ability to comprehend the Scriptures? Zero. I used to think, God, I used to think God's people were nuts. They were so happy. They were just happy. I was in my 20s, and I was reading, doing Zen philosophy and smoking dope and stuff, and I thought, these people... Are, they must be on some drug better than what I've got because they're so happy all the time. Don't they know the world's falling apart? How come they're, don't they have any angst? I mean, you know, no anxiety? What's wrong with these Christians? It's very attractive, but I, you know, that's what happens when you're deceived and you don't have the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and show you what's really going on. So how do we deal with these spiritual forces? Well, we can't do it in our own strength. We must put on the armor of God daily to be equipped for the battle. And our enemy is the master of ambush. Ephesians 6.3 says what? If you're going to do warfare with the enemy, do what? 
Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. So we're commanded to put on the armor of God so that we have the ability to resist spiritual attacks. And we can do that in his supernatural ability in and through us. Here's how it's done. James 6, 4. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And you go, well, that's a principle. So how do you apply that? Easy. Tough to do, easy to say. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and draw near to you. So if you want to win over Satan's forces, you win by surrendering to God. Correct? How do you do that? You wake up every morning and say, Lord, I want to walk with you today. I surrender my life to you. I surrender my thoughts. I surrender my mind. I surrender my heart. I surrender my will. I surrender my motives. Fill me with your spirit today. Give me your power. Cleanse me from sin. Enable me to accomplish what you have for me today. Those are things you should say before your feet hit the floor. Because I can sin by the time I wake up before my feet are on the floor. I'm sure you can too. Right? Because anytime we go, well, I don't need God's help to get out of bed. Ah, not so much. I think you do. Right? We need his help for everything at that point in time. So submit first to God, and then he will give you the supernatural power to successfully resist Satan's attacks. So we know there's spiritual warfare in heaven, there's spiritual warfare on earth. We know that Satan tries to thwart the purposes of God both in heaven and on earth. And Gabriel says, I'm in spiritual combat with the prince of the, of the kingdom of Persia, and I needed help. And who shows up? Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Who is Michael? Michael's the only archangel mentioned in Scripture, Jude 9. The name Michael means, who is like God? And he's the angel specifically assigned to the welfare of Israel. The chief archangel in heaven is assigned to the welfare of Israel. And it seems as though Gabriel would have been unable to make it through the spiritual opposition in the heavenly places to get to Daniel without Michael's help. And I saw that and I thought, I didn't think there was any opposition that that was great, that that was that big, that he would need help. It's, Gabriel says, I had been left with the kings of Persia. I want you to think through this with me. It seems as though Gabriel's job description, among other things, was to influence the human rulers of Persia, namely Cyrus, to accomplish God's purpose of bringing his people back home. Have you thought about how is it that God could predict 150 years before Cyrus that Cyrus was going to be the one called by name in Isaiah 44 and 45 to free Israel? How is it that Cyrus would be influenced to do this? Do you think there was any supernatural prompting in Cyrus's life to do this? Of course, God says so. Right? So Gabriel's job description was to encourage Cyrus to accomplish God's purpose of freeing his people back to Canaan. Who was against Israel going back to Canaan? Satan. Why would Satan not want Israel to go back to the promised land? Who's going to be born of Mary a few centuries from now in Israel? Messiah. What's Messiah going to do to Satan according to Genesis 3? Kill him. Do you think Satan does not want Israel back in the land? Of course he doesn't want them back in the land. Messiah is going to be born of Israel and is going to crush him in his kingdom. So we know why Satan so strongly opposed Israel going back to the promised land. We also know why Satan would work so hard to keep Gabriel from bringing this message to Daniel. You now understand why how many demons incited Haman? Remember Haman? Hitler of the Old Testament? 100 years from now? To slaughter all the Jews in the Persian Empire? Where does that come from? Satan, right? 
Apparently, Michael intervened to ensure that the Jews would go back to their homeland and ensure that Gabriel would deliver the message. I want you to think about something. What happened on May 14, 1948? Something that's never occurred in history. A nation that has been dispossessed from the land for two millennia is regathered according to the promise of God. Can you imagine the spiritual warfare that took place in the heavenly places over that? And when you saw the physical warfare that's been taking place over the land of Israel ever since, today there is continued opposition to the very existence of Israel. And it all has a supernatural origin. Because God has purposes for the land and the nation of Israel from time immemorial, and Satan's opposed to that. So good and evil angels seek to influence human rulers. In this case, the kings of Persia to accomplish God's plan for that ruler or to subvert it. So when you look at the wars going on around the world today, you say, hmm, I wonder what kind of supernatural activity has been going on before this occurred. I don't know the answer to that, but it is an interesting question. Gabriel tells Daniel in chapter 11, verse 1, In the first year of Darius the Mede, another name for Cyrus, I, Gabriel, arose to be an encouragement to Cyrus and a protection for him. It's pretty clear that Gabriel's saying, look, God tasked me to, to encourage Cyrus to issue the decree to send the Jews back to the land of Canaan and to protect him from the demonic influence that wanted to subvert God's plan and not have him issue that decree. Verse 15, how's Daniel respond to this? When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O oh my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant as my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Here's the principle. Contact with holiness is traumatic. It brings conviction of sin and a need for cleansing. Contact with holiness is traumatic. It brings conviction of sin and a need for cleansing. Anytime you see in Scripture human beings in their physical bodies, contact supernatural holiness, it is profoundly disabling to them. Clearly, we in our current physical state are not equipped to have prolonged contact with the supernatural realm. It seems to just take us out of commission. Isaiah, sinful Isaiah, saw a holy God seated on the throne in Isaiah 6, and what were the first things out of his mouth? Woe is me! For what? I am a man of unclean lips. Who told him he had a dirty mouth, a sinful mouth, a sinful heart? The holiness of God on the throne revealed his sin nature. Holiness brought conviction of sin. Isaiah repented and then and he was cleansed. God sent an angel, took a coal, touched his lips, and cleansed him at that point. Here's a really hard truth. I don't know how to say this nicely, so I'll just say it. Most people, including many Christians, Avoid intimacy with holy God because they don't want to be convicted of their sin. You cannot become intimate with holy God and not remain convicted of sin. You will be convicted of sin when you get close to God. Because He's holy. And most people love their sin more than they want to be holy. That's just reality. God says, be holy because I'm holy. Like Isaiah, we all have a choice. When we draw near to God, we can either repent or we can rebel, but you cannot stay the same. You cannot stay the same and be intimate with God. We've said this before. You can't hold on to God with one hand and hold on to sin with the other hand. You're holding on to God with one hand, you're going to have to let go of the sin because God's not going to tolerate sin in your life. He loves you way too much to tolerate sin because he knows it'll kill you. And this occurs, obviously, with any time you see this in Scripture. At some point in time, sin will have to be done away with in our body, or we cannot, obviously, dwell 
in heavenly places. 1 Corinthians 15 gives us an idea of the limitations of our physical flesh when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood, that's our bodies today, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised in imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now that is probably the greatest understatement in the Bible. You think we're going to be changed. Yeah, your body was made for life on earth. It's not made to live eternally. So you're going to get new bodies. Guess what? The lost are going to get new bodies as well. They will get a body that will survive hell forever. Impossible to die in hell. You will get a body, as Christians, that will live forever in heaven. Impossible to die in heaven. Immortal, both cases. Location depends on who you have trusted for salvation. You trust Jesus Christ for salvation, you get a body that lives forever in heaven. If you refuse to, you get a body that's made to live forever in hell. Right? But no matter what, our perishable, weak, natural, earthly bodies will not survive the spiritual realm. And that's one of the reasons when we see men and women of Scripture come in contact with holiness, it is just disabling. It just undoes them because it convicts them of sin. Before we can inherit the kingdom of God and live eternally, we must be freed from sin. And our bodies will have to be changed. And that's why Jesus Christ came to give us new life. You must be what? Born again. And the good news is, we will inherit bodies designed to live forever, and as we age, we know how much we need that. Amen? When you got up this morning, you went creak and groan, you go, you know, I need a new body, that anti-grav one. That's what I'm looking forward to. Verse 18, then this one, the angel, with a human appearance, touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia, so I am going forth. And behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth, yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince." Here's the principle. Until Jesus returns, God's angels and God's people will be engaged in continual conflict with the forces of Satan. Until Jesus returns, God's angels and God's people will be engaged in continual conflict with the forces of Satan. Now, God has specific plans for individuals. God has specific plans for nations. God has a specific plan for his planet. And he says, Daniel... You are a man of high esteem. The old KJV is rather interesting. It says, Daniel, you are greatly beloved, which is an interesting designation. This is God talking about one of his children. He says, you're greatly beloved. I can't think of a higher appellation other than that. The only other one I know is when Jesus was baptized and God the Father said, this is my what? Beloved son. So you say, well, how could Daniel be greatly beloved by God? Well, God delighted in Daniel because Daniel delighted in God. I mean, Daniel was praying three, four times a day. Daniel made God a priority. It was very mutually affectionate at this point in time. And I think it bespeaks the intimacy that God wants with us. God wants that kind of intimacy. If you want to think about how God feels toward you, think about how you feel about your grandchildren. And then multiply that by infinity. That's how he looks to you. That's how he loves you. That's how he delights in you. And you're going, Lord, there's not much here to delight in. He goes, it doesn't matter. You're mine. You're part of my family. I adopted you. I shed my blood for you because you're precious to me. And this is a little picture of that. And this angel says, peace be to you. It means shalom. Shalom is the word, Hebrew word for peace, but it's far more than just an absence of conflict. It's, it's a comprehensive sense of well-being and wholeness not just the absence of conflict. And then he says, peace be to you, but I have to go and return and fight with the prince of Persia. The conflict is ongoing. 
until the end of time, when Christ comes back and establishes a kingdom on earth, and he's going to do that at the end of the tribulation, there's going to be conflict in the spiritual realm, and there's going to be conflict in the, in the physical realm. So scripture sometimes pulls back the curtain to reveal spiritual realities. One example of that. Remember the prophet Elisha? Elisha's been telling the king of Israel all of his enemies' plans because God revealed them to him. So the king of Syria sends a great army and he surrounds the village where, where Elisha's staying, the village of Dothan. And there's this big physical army, horses and chariots, and they're going to capture Elisha. And the servant of Elisha gets up in the morning, goes out, and he sees this vast army surrounding the city, and he panics. And Elisha says, quote, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opens the servant's eyes, and Elisha, Elisha's servant sees the mountains around the city surrounded with an army of horses and chariots of fire. That's where they got the title for the movie, Chariots of Fire. Sent by God to protect Elisha. So you and I live in this physical world, and we really think this is all there is. It's like an iceberg. You only see a poquito, a little piece. Do you realize the spiritual conflict that goes inside that sanctuary every time the invitation is given? Do you know how it's going on there? How many people get text messages on their phone about the time the invitation occurs? It just kind of happens that way. We used to go out doing evangelism. The phone would always ring when you start to bring the presentation up. Always. Well, it just, it just occurred. No, that's called spiritual interference. Right? Satan's busy working, trying to distract people. Okay. But you in your life, I in my life, right now have horses and chariots of fire surrounding us. We don't see the spiritual realm, but God has got it covered. I know you look in your life and you're going, Brad, you have no clue what I'm facing. I may not. Jesus Christ does. And his power and his angelic forces on your behalf are unconquerable. When Jesus was baptized, what did we see? The curtain got pulled back. The Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove. The Father spoke from heaven. When Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration, right, they see this brilliant, blinding light when Christ's humanity is pulled back and they see his glory, his blinding light like the sun. And Moses and Elijah come, Elijah come down and talk with him about his upcoming death and resurrection. The reality is the spiritual reality is more consequential than the physical reality. By the way, this angel says, by the way, I'm fighting the prince of Persia today, and guess what? The prince of Greece is about to come. Who would that be? Well, in about 200 years, Alexander the Great shows up, and about a matter of five, six, eight years, conquers the known world, including Persia. And you look at that and you say, whoa, 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 hang on. You're telling me that Satan is planning 200 years in advance and he's already got a demonic leader called the Prince of Greece assigned to the region of Greece to be ready when Alexander shows up. Well, yeah. Satan's playing an eternal game. God is also, obviously, the eternal creator. Satan's a creature. His power is limited, but they both are focused on your soul for eternity. This is serious business. Satan doesn't know the future, only God does, but he needs to be prepared to counter whatever God's got moving, so he assigns specific demons for specific jobs. If you don't think there's demonic activity taking place in the Ukraine right now behind the scenes, I would beg to differ. Evil always has origins, and the origin of evil, of course, is Satan in the human heart. Verse 21b, yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Now, this is utterly intriguing to me because we often assume that angelic forces from God vastly outnumber Satan's angels. Revelation 12, 3 and 4 seem to indicate that one-third of the angels rebelled with Satan, two-thirds stayed loyal to God, and that could easily be. But this is a battle that clearly God will win, but at least it seems here Gabriel's saying, look, I'm really outnumbered. If it wasn't for Michael, there's no one who's standing with me at this point in time, which is interesting. 
See, the real core issue is not the number of angels. It's that God's always going to be victorious. And God will always receive the glory. Not angels, not humans. So the hard news is your spiritual warfare will continue until the day you see Jesus face to face. We've talked about this. This is not a playground, right? It's not Disneyland. It's Afghanistan. Put your armor on every day. You have been called to battle. And you have spiritual forces all around you for good or evil. But you have, who lives inside you? The Holy Spirit. You have God himself inside you. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. God's people, when they depend on the Lord, are unstoppable and unconquerable. We know the battle is the Lord's, and in his power, his people will be victorious. So this is the introduction. The prophecy is going to be next week, and it is incredibly detailed. So I'm looking forward to having that with you. Let's review before we do prayer and praise. Point one, effective prayer requires focused attention and vigilance, and that's where the battle takes place. You want to do spiritual warfare? You do it on your knees. Number two, Jesus is the focus of prophecy and the goal of history. Daniel saw the risen Christ, or the pre-incarnate Christ. John saw the resurrected Christ. Christ is the focus. Number three, reality, what we call reality, is like an iceberg. The unseen spiritual world is far more consequential than the visible physical world. So never draw conclusions based on what you see. You draw conclusions based on what God says. This is reality. It's written by the Creator. Don't get fooled by what you see or what you hear. Read what God says. That's reality. Number four, contact with holiness is traumatic. It brings conviction of sin and a need for cleansing. When you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. When you repent, he will forgive and restore. And lastly, until Jesus returns, God's angels and God's people will be engaged in continual conflict with the forces of Satan. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Whew. We covered a lot of turf, huh? Thank you for hanging with me. I appreciate it so much. I love you guys. Next week, Lord willing, Daniel 11. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.